Welcome to Spook Pod. This is Courtney. And this is Emily. everyone to another episode of spook pod we are here with you today after a little break last week so thank you again for your understanding last week we took off it was just a busy week i got married hurrah it was lots you're of not fun. allowed to take any time ever after you get married you have to just go <laughs> right back to work but Before we dive into our case today, that's actually something that we wanted to talk about because we took off the week last week and we realized that it was just like a huge breath of fresh air. Like, I don't think people tend to not really realize all the work that goes into a podcast. And we I mean, especially on Courtney's end, I just want to say like for this pod specifically, the amount of work she does on it is mind boggling because I've done like a couple episodes, but like here and there and very sparsely (laughs) and she like week after week does this because this is like my little passion project which is really fun but when your passion project gets to the point where you're you you know it's really hard to write all the content for this for a case record it edit it push it out and then have to turn around and start that whole process again Every single week with kind of no stopping. So we And have a full time job and have a life outside of this pod. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. and I mean like we don't have much of a life outside of this pod. No, Let's not, not get really. too enthusiastic. <laughs> but sometimes life happens. Sometimes life happens and sometimes you just need to chill, you know? Like sometimes I need to take a night where I just like watch Twilight on Netflix. <laughs> Stop telling people that that's what you do for fun. Stop it. <laughs> Like, that's just pick another show. <laughs> so we were discussing it and we decided that we are going to move to an every two week cadence uh, for episode release here. So going forward, starting now, episodes will come out every other week instead of every week. Same on Friday, like usual, just every two weeks. And I think that that will be a lot better for us. I also think that it's better for the cases too, right? Because I can put more attention into researching and we need to do these cases justice. Like these are telling people's stories. It's not something that we want to feel like we're rushing through. Yeah. I was going to say, it feels crappy for us when we're like working on something. You're like, well, I don't really have all the information I wanted, but let's go talk about this person's life anyway. Yeah, exactly. So For a multitude of reasons, we're moving to a two-week cadence. I hope everyone is okay with that. I am really sorry if that upsets people because I know we have, like, a very tiny little following on this show and I didn't want to upset anybody. But I think overall, like, for quality of content, I think that's going to be a lot better. I can see your dog, like, (laughs) I'm sorry. He's being weird right now. I just saw, like, the bottom of his mouth just, like, appear. (laughs) Uh, Okay, but with all of that important stuff being said, I think we can dive into today's case. And, uh, yeah, now that I had two weeks off to work on this, I felt like I could really go into a lot more 
a lot more depth with the with the content here. And this is a really important case. It's also one that was very famous worldwide, I think. So this is the murder of Nikki Verstappen. And I need to give a content warning before we dive in because this is the story about an 11-year-old boy who was murdered. It also involves a possible sexual assault, not a confirmed one, although likely. Um, but as usual, I don't go into any detail about it. So if this is an episode that will trigger you, then no problem. We will see you next time. But if you're sticking around, then uh, as always, these stories are important to tell. And this is Nikki's story. The podcast, uh, there was a podcast called Evidence Locker, and they also did a super good job on this case. I thought they have an episode on it, and I linked it in the notes here. So if you want to listen to theirs, um, it's the same story. So we say generally the same things, but um, a little bit differently. So if you want to listen to them as well, you can go for it. And they're an American podcast, I think, like the hosts are American. So that kind of shows you that how, how this case kind of reached far and wide in the world. And this story is a long one in the sense that solving it took ages. Like Nikki was murdered in 1998 and the trial for his killer just happened in 2020. So wow. yeah. So it would take more than 20 years to get justice for him. But thank God justice did come eventually. So let's begin. Nikki was born on March 13th, 1987, to his mother, Berthy, and father, Petia, or Peter, or Pete in English. He had a younger sister as well, named Femke, and he lived in a village called Highbloom, which is in, like, one of the southern provinces in the Netherlands. He loved the song Poison by Alice Cooper, and when he grew up, he wanted to play soccer or football, depending on what you call it, uh, for Ajax. He was a diehard Ajax fan. He never missed a game. His room was decorated in all red and white to support them. And he was 11 years old on Saturday, August 8th, 1998, when he went off with 36 other children to a summer camp in Brunsum, which is a town also like very, very south in Holland. Basically as south as you can go almost is is where this was. Um, it was kind of right on the border with Germany and basically in Belgium. It's so south. Uh, but it was only about 45 minutes away from his hometown. And the really sad part was that Nikki didn't really want to go to this camp. Like he didn't go the previous year and he thought he would rather just stay home, like spend the summer at his house, riding his bike around, playing soccer. But then he decided he was going to stick it out. He was going to go away to camp this year. So all of these 36 kids that went with him to this camp, they were from his village, essentially. So everyone's about 8 to 12 years old. So it was kind of like a village camping trip, but with like the kids from the village so he was with people that he was familiar with on this trip, and he shared a tent with four other boys who were his friends, and he knew them well. So he arrives at camp, and they have one day there, 
And then on that night, August 9th, they would go to bed at, at around 10 p.m. when all the activities of the day were done. But the next morning, when everyone woke up, Nikki would be missing right out of his bed. A tent mate saw him early in the morning uh, around 5 a.m. So we're, we're now into August 10th. So a tent mate sees him at 5 a.m. He's still sleeping in his sleeping bag. The tent mate just got up to go to the bathroom. And then at 6 a.m., another tent mate got up to use the bathroom and they noticed that Nikki was gone. At first, it was just thought by the tent mate, so he probably went to the bathroom or something. But by 8 a.m., camp festivities are starting and they still there's no sign of Nikki anywhere. So at this point, the kids in the tent with him informed the camp counselors that Nikki wasn't there. At first, the, everyone really thought that he just like left or wandered away like on his own volition. And the camp counselors just started conducting their own search for him. They called his parents to let them know. And they came immediately. And... The family, of course, thought something was really wrong. Like, they were like, Nikki would not just walk off and leave. Uh, but for everyone else, they really just thought he went in the woods, he got lost, he's going to be found soon, alive and well. Later into the afternoon of that day, when they still couldn't find him, they decided it was time to phone the police. And so police came, and again... There wasn't much urgency except from the family at this point, but they're still looking, right? So the leaders, they were handing out flyers, they were going around town, they were knocking on houses around the area to see if anyone had seen him, they're searching the woods, um, but he's not found all day. So then it goes into the night of August 10th, and it was really weird at this point because they were still trying to keep the camp going normally. So all these kids are still like doing fun activities and stuff. But at the same time, it's like a whole bunch of parents are there. A whole bunch of volunteers came from the town and everyone's like searching for him. So it was a bit of a weird vibe. And then a much bigger search was conducted the next day, August 11th, because at this point now he's been missing for 24 hours it was a really hot day, too, in the in where they were camping. So they were like, okay, like he has been in the woods for 24 hours. Even if he wandered away and got lost on his own, like this is becoming pretty critical now. So the next day, the military came in, like, um, or the military police, like soldiers came in. There was an airplane flying overhead. They had police dogs come in. It was a huge search the next day. And still, he wasn't being found. They were worried that they were going to run out of sunlight. And then at 9 p.m., that second day, August 11th, they found a body. And it was Nikki's body. He was found near a Christmas tree farm about 1.2 kilometers away from the camp. He was found wearing only pants and underwear. He had no shirt on but both were inside out and backwards. And it was actually his own uncle who found him. An autopsy was performed three days later, and honestly, not a lot could be determined from it. So they didn't know the time of death, 
a little bit later, like they didn't know if Nikki was kind of killed right away as soon as he was taken or if he had been alive like that day that they were searching for him. So they had no idea what time he died. They had no idea how he died, although they thought possibly he could have been suffocated. And as I mentioned before, it could not be confirmed that he was sexually assaulted based on the autopsy. It was other factors that kind of gave them the thought that this was the motive, like the fact that his pants were on backwards and things like that. There was also some evidence found at the scene, like there was a tissue nearby that contained semen, and there was a bottle cap and a cigarette butt. All of the DNA on these three samples matched, so they were from the same person, but because they were a little bit far away from where Nikki's body was found, it wasn't super clear whether these three items were involved in the crime scene or if they were just random items that were there. Okay, so here's the thing, though, because, like, if they weren't involved in the crime scene, that means that, like, aside from there being a body at this Christmas tree farm, there was also just some random man drinking a pop and masturbating (laughs) and smoking a cigarette there. So, like, I don't know. What are the chances of that? So, apparently, the, the area where he was found was a spot where men would meet men to have sex in the woods. This Okay, so maybe it's a little more common then. Yeah. I'll go into that in a bit more detail later, but yeah, apparently this was like a kind of local hangout spot, I guess, for people to get rowdy in the woods. (laughs) Why do you have... No, hang on. I gotta pause this again, because Netherlands, we need to have a slight discussion about, in 1998, allowing there to be a children's camp. So close to... And to a, a known spot for sexual hookups. Yeah. I'm not and I don't care who's hooking up with who. Like this is not a this is just there are people engaging in sexual activity in public less than like 2 kilometers away from where your camp is. Maybe we reassess. Where the children are camping. Yeah. Yeah. No. Like let's just <laughs> Take a minute. Wait till you find out. Oh, no, this is going to get worse, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Wait till you find out how I know this, because it does get a lot worse. (laughs) So, yeah, after Nikki's found, the hunt for his killer begins, of course. And as I mentioned, it would be a long haul full of lots of twists and turns, countless suspects. The first guy, this is the guy... I'll, I'll save it for it in a second. But this first guy, his name was Jos Barton, and he was the founder of the camp. So he was the first suspect. He was extensively questioned by police in the days following. And it came out that he was a former headmaster at a local primary school, and he was fired after they found out that he had been sexually abusing students in the 1950s. Okay, we're going to put another pause here. Why, <laughs> Why did I don't he know found a summer the... camp? That's my yeah, question. Yeah, I don't know how it works in the Netherlands, but in Canada, there's these things called background checks where you're not allowed to work with a vulnerable population if you've already been like found to be assaulting a vulnerable population. Yeah, well, it's the same in the Netherlands, and everyone was just like shocked that this was allowed to happen, but it it gets even worse. So... No. Yeah, he he. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble, Emily. So I was uh, having a good day. 
Uh, after he was found to be sexually abusing the students in the 1950s, he did serve three months in prison, although just three months. Then, yeah, he gets out of prison. He went on to start a youth soccer club. He founded this youth camp, and he was the self-proclaimed Sinterklaas in his town where he lived at Christmas time. I'm so sorry. He's... Is that children sitting on your lap version? Yeah. Yeah, I actually cool. don't know if people do that with Santa Claus. Not really. Like, it's a little bit different than Santa. Oh, but... good. So it's not as weirdly deviant as the American version of Santa. Cool, cool. But he's definitely placing himself in a lot of areas with children. And, yeah, just totally working with children. Then they would go on. They found images of children from the locker room. Of this, in the soccer club that he founded so he he apparently he was like constantly going in the locker room too like you don't need to do that bro like he's well, just that's, an absolute if that's where creep. your if that's where your diddly pictures are then yes you do need to go into there constantly. <laughs> yeah so he was taking pictures of the children in the locker room like he was so fucking creepy so, yeah, besides the fact that he was literally convicted of sexual crimes against children, he also admitted to being near the tent that Nikki slept in around 6 a.m. on the morning of his, his disappearance. He said he was checking on another student who had injured himself. Did anyone himself. interview that other student and see what the checking was? Because... <laughs> Unsure. Apparently, a student had hurt himself and he was near the vicinity because he was checking on that student. Um, also, when they were searching for Nikki, he was like constantly pointing in the direction of where Nikki's body would be found and kind of like trying to guide people in that direction. So when they found him and he had been like, they're like, okay, this guy's creepy. He was like guiding people there. So... Yeah, it's like that it's... TikTok thing where it's just like constantly like, don't be suspicious. Don't, don't be, be suspicious. suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You're not he, doing that. <laughs> no, he was super fucking sus the whole time. Um, and just as a little like shit cherry on top, a 15-year-old girl came forward who attended the teenager's camp. And she said that she suspected that she had been sexually abused by him in her sleep. So apparently she also was injured or something and he gave her some medicine, but the medicine like knocked her out and she woke up uh, and she had like some pain in her abdomen and her like lower area. So, but she only reported this like after this whole thing happened. So there was kind of no evidence at that point. Um, yeah, and I mean, like, in her defense, though, like, honestly, as a, like, a 15-year-old, if you wake up and you're just like, oh, my tummy kind of hurts, you're not thinking, oh, I was sexually assaulted in my sleep, you're thinking I ate something that was, like, you know, bad for me, or I've strained something, or my injury did, like, you're not, the immediate thing isn't yeah. some creepy old man came in and diddled me in my sleep, like, that's not. Like, you're trying to justify it to yourself, right? And a lot of people don't report, so... Yeah, like, no no shade to her or anything, but they just couldn't use it as any evidence because there was none at that point. Um, so, yeah, like, this guy, this Yoz Barton creep, creepsicle, he sounds like a pretty good candidate to at least, like, test his DNA or look into him more, right? 
but they did not at this point. Quick little intervention here. Is this one of the ones where we hear the entirety of this case, and then it turns out that later down the line, in like 15 years, in order to exonerate himself from another case, he donates his <laughs> DNA to me? Because <laughs> that's happened a lot. Like, criminals be dumb. <laughs> criminals are so dumb. Well... I don't want to spoil anything yet. I hate spoilers. I think you it's know a that. yes. I think it's a yes, everyone. Buckle up. I'm not going to give anything away. but You don't we'll have see. to. I'm telling them right now. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, at this point, like, no staff members or leaders at the camp were considered suspects and investigators kind of moved on. Nikki's parents during this time, like, they fought for so long. They were, they really fought for their son to get justice. Um And they said that they had a really hard time during this time trusting anybody because like a lot of the people at this camp were people that lived in their village. So they assumed that it was someone that Nikki knew who did this to him. So they really described like a feeling of like they couldn't trust anyone in their village. They had a hard time doing anything with anybody after this. And they would end up moving out of this town that they lived in because of this. But continuing on, so a reward of 25,000 guilders, this was the currency they used before the euros in the Netherlands, um, this was offered by the Openbar Ministry in Maastricht. So this is uh, like the district prosecutors, essentially, that's what they're called. Um, And this was for information on the identity of the perpetrator, and then that awful, awful... (laughs) That offer was doubled in 1999 when money raised by our good pal, crime reporter, Peter R. De Vries, got involved. So he was very involved in this case as well. He became really close to the family and became a really important spokesperson for the family and did a lot of episodes on this case as well. But not really any leads were coming in at this point, so... The investigation team was dissolved in November of 1998, and then a new team kind of took over between 2000 and uh, 2001. So let's talk a little bit about the suspects. There have been a lot of suspects over the years. Um, One that came out around this time was Martin Ney. He was a German serial killer, and he had killed three boys between 1992 and 2000. Uh, This guy was super creepy. They called him, like, the masked man because he would wear a creepy black mask. And he seemed to kill someone every three years. So he had a victim in 1992, in 1995, and one in 2001. So they had... He skipped a... Oh, the 1998. I see it. Yeah, they had 1998 missing. Like, they didn't have a victim for that year. And that was the year that Nikki was murdered. So... And it's right on the German border, uh, right where this guy kind of was. So they thought maybe he was involved in this. Another suspect was a guy named Rokus V. I don't know if I said that right. Um, But he was a drug addict and a stepbrother of a young camp leader. And it was actually Peter Ardvries who found this suspect, but I couldn't really find any details on why he had come to Peter's attention. Uh, But this led to no more solid information and he was released. 
The next suspect, they literally just referred to this guy as Wim, W-I-M, and he was a sex offender from Kirkrada, and various witnesses, witnesses had spotted him in this area in August of 1998, but the exact day could not be proven. And then he actually died shortly after this, so they kind of moved oh, on. what a shame. What a, what yeah, a loss. What a, what a, what a shame. So then, in 2003, Yoz Barton, the creepy camp leader, died. And, yeah, I, he was really, like, the main suspect for Nikki's family. So they were really pushing, even after his death, for him to be looked into Okay, further. guys, I'm sorry. My theory didn't pan out because he didn't implicate himself later on. And it's stupid. <laughs> Whatever. He had to go and die. Yeah, he died. Then, starting in 2005, anonymous letters began appearing by Nikki's grave. There were about seven or eight that appeared over the next year, and the author of these letters was suggesting that they were the ones that had killed Nikki. In January 2007, after people saw a man, like, scurrying around the gravesite and leaving another letter... <laughs> They arrested a 36-year-old man from Landgraf named Eric A. And he was arrested on suspicion of having written these letters and of killing Nikki. In the letters, he said things that apparently only the perpetrator would know, but they couldn't find any connection, like anything further than that, to the campsite or to Nikki, and he was released two weeks later. But then... He was rearrested in December for vandalizing Nikki's gravesite. One month later, he was sentenced to three months in prison, imprisonment for this vandalism. And then he got out, and then the grave was vandalized again in April 2008, August 2013, and April 2019. And all of these instances are thought to be Eric. It seems like like he does have some mental disturbances, this Eric guy. Uh, he spent time in psychiatric wards, uh, but it looks like he is just a weird guy who was obsessed with this case and needed to fuck off. Get a better hobby, bro. Get a better hobby. <laughs> in 2008, there was a breakthrough. So with new DNA testing capabilities, they found foreign male DNA on Nikki's body. And this gave people some hope that, okay, now we can find a perpetrator because we have DNA, like, on his body. In 2010... Oh, wait, I just realized I didn't say what I was supposed to say. Okay, well, we're, we're coming back to this Yoz Barton guy, the guy that... Dead boy. The dead boy, the guy that we hate very much. He was the one that told police that that area was like a hookup place for men to go to. So that's how the police knew that. He would know. Yeah, he would know. He's a fucking creep. So I forgot to say that before, but um so not to imply to that him, everyone no not to imply that everyone who has like clandestine hookups it, it is like a creep. I don't it, this man specifically. Yeah. <laughs> I need to clarify that. I don't judge people for what they're doing. But yeah. when you're a have predator se- and creepy, this have man. Have sex in the woods all you want, but... Not around children and don't include them in <laughs> yeah, your business. exactly. Thank you. So coming back to this guy in 2010, 
uh, remember he died in 2003, with pressure from Nikki's parents, the body of Joz Barton was exhumed to finally test his DNA, and it did not match. Sorry, Emily. This was really surprising and really frustrating to a lot of people, and a huge blow, frankly, because the family was thinking they would finally have an answer after 12 years at this point. And Nikki's mom said, quote, we're back to square one. Now we don't know anything again, but something is just not right about that man, <laughs> which I really love her disdain for that. She's not guy. wrong. Yeah, no, she's not wrong at all. Uh, like he was clearly a creep and a convicted pedophile, but he was not the one who murdered Nikki. So DNA profiling is a major theme in this case, and between December 1999 and January 2000, before they found the DNA on Nikki, they tested 35 men to that tissue and stuff that we found near the crime scene, but none of those matched. And then in 2010, when the new evidence came, police took DNA samples from an additional 80 men, but still they found no matching sample. So then, in January of 2018, almost 20 years after Nikki had been murdered, it was announced that 21,500 men in the Limburg province, where Nikki's body was found, would be asked to give samples of their DNA in an attempt to trace his killer. So this is like that family matching thing that they're doing again? Yeah, exactly. So it's the same. I like that they do this. This brings me joy. I like it too. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about it and a lot of people think it's really uh what's the word like not ethical okay not ethical yeah unethical um but i love it like if you got nothing i don't think it's unethical you know what's unethical killing and raping and murder like all of that is unethical exactly you want to talk to me about like some random person being willing to donate their dna to help if their dna is linked to somebody who has done these things like you're the ones doing unethical things you should be caught exactly um so yeah this was the exact same thing that they did we talked about it in the mariana vodstra case which is our most popular episode. Um, So if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to it because, yeah, this is a really cool way to find perpetrators. So how it works is they test a shitload of people in the area, hoping that if they don't get the perpetrator, they will get the perpetrator's, like, brother or father or cousin or something like that. So they'll be able to narrow it down to searching in a specific family. In the Mariana Vatstra case, this technique worked super well because it was small town Friesland where the population was really steady, like no one kind of came and left the area. But this area where they did it in this case was a little bit different. So this was a nature area, like a campsite area uh, where a lot of people came and went on vacation. It was also attached to the German border So Germans could come across as they pleased, and this testing was not allowed to include German people. It was against their laws and their policies. Rude. Rude. So the testing began on February 24th. We're still in the year 2018, and the police had set aside three weeks for taking cheek swabs. 
During that period, they had 100 police officers working on the investigation every day doing this. And when they started, it it started out really great. Like the willingness to cooperate in the community was so high. And men even came to give their samples, even if they hadn't been asked to do it. And they also had people... um, from the German side of the border do that as well, even though like by law, they didn't have to, they were not even allowed to do it. They came over and gave their sample anyways. So it was really great at first. And they had about a thousand men in the first five days, but then it started to slow down a little bit. They still had a huge turnout. They had 17,500 men in total give a DNA sample, which was the biggest one uh, that has ever been conducted in the Netherlands. It was bigger than the Mariana Vatstra one in terms of numbers, but in terms of a response rate, it was lower. So they had about an 80% response rate, whereas Mariana Vatstra had a 90% response rate. So still good, you know, but they were just hoping to get it up a little bit more. And as we know with Mariana Vatstra, like, even the perpetrator gave his DNA, right? He gave it on the very last day of sample collection. Just like, don't, where's your head at, bro? Yeah, he knew, he knew he was getting caught and he gave his DNA, but that didn't happen in this case. So the lower turnout was also thought to be kind of about factors that I already mentioned. So the population wasn't as stable and also apparently people in this area didn't trust the government as much as in Friesland. So they didn't want their DNA in the system. Um, Even though it wouldn't be in the system, like they said that they would test it and then destroy it after, but the people like did not trust that that would happen. So that's kind of, I mean, to be fair, I probably wouldn't either with like our government. I would just be like, no, they're they're keeping (laughs) it. Well, like that is always the, why people don't like doing this type of DNA thing, right? Because they think that the government is going to, I don't know, clone them or something, like do weird stuff with their DNA. Personally, I don't know what the fuck the the government would want to do with your DNA. I think the real issue here is they don't want their DNA on file in case they they do a crime. crime. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) But, I mean, I am, like, so pro- just everyone putting their DNA in the system and then just finding things easily. Like, if you don't do anything wrong, what do you have to worry about? Yeah. Because, like, I feel like, I feel like everybody's, like, nervous that it's going to turn into some, like, minority report pre-crime thing. But it's really just to catch people who have already committed a yeah. crime and we are searching for their DNA and here it is in the system. Otherwise, let me tell you, the government, nobody wants your DNA. You ain't that special. The government also, doesn't kind care. Of filthy. I don't want DNA strands from some random guy on my shelf. Ew. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But hey, it is what it is. Um, So as this testing was taking place, it took like months for them to, well, first they did all the cheek swabs, but then they have to test everything, right? And that takes months. So as this testing was going on, August 10th, 2018, came and went, which marked 20 years since Nikki had disappeared. And that also meant that the statute of limitations passed on a lot of possible crimes. 
So rape and murder, for example, were still on the table. But other things that you can, like, nab a killer with that are, like, maybe smaller things but allow you to... kidnapping or, like, unlawful confinement, stuff like that, I think. Yeah, I think kidnapping was still good because I think he gets charged with that later, uh, the dude. But there were some that they, like, were useless to them now and... If you don't have the evidence to do the big ones, it sucks that when you can't get like the smaller, more easy ones, you know? Um, so yeah, that happened. And then just 12 days later, on August 22nd, a DNA match was found. So this was through a family member because again, like the the perpetrator did not give his DNA in this case. Uh, but a family member of his did. So they got a match where it was like, hey, this one looks like it could be in the same family. It's not a 100% match, but he's related to him in some way. So they needed to get, they needed to look in that family from there to see who could it be in the family. And then they needed to get that person's DNA to see if it was the correct guy. So they did that. They found who they thought that it could be. But there was just one problem with that. That suspect was missing. Like he was literally a reported missing person. Yep. Good. Yep. (laughs) I feel like maybe he got iced for doing the right thing. You know? So the suspect's name was Josef Theresia Johannes Breck. He went by Yos, J-O-S, Yos. And because he was reported missing, so this is kind of, you're going to get a kick out of this. This is kind of like what you were saying before, but because he was a reported missing person, police were allowed to go to his family home and take his stuff to test his DNA. Like if he was not a missing person, he would have to give permission to do that and he'd probably say no right but because he's a missing person literally reported missing the police had the authority to just go take his stuff and test his so DNA. more helpful more helpful yeah. to us that yeah. uh <laughs> so he probably should have checked in with his family or something because like if they didn't report him missing this wouldn't have happened he wouldn't have had to give his DNA, like, they would have had to get a warrant, essentially. Um, And as it turned out, after they took his stuff and tested his DNA, it was a 100% match, and this missing dude was the one they wanted for killing Nikki. So wait, so why was the first sample only, like, a partial? Because it was a family member. Okay, so then they were looking... Okay, so yeah. then they, from the family member, were looking at, like, other family members. Yeah, exactly. Went to look at this guy, and he was missing. I, okay, yeah. I'm following along now. Yeah, I was, okay. like, <laughs> I thought that the guy who gave his DNA was this Joe's guy, and he was missing. No, and I no. was like, well, that's inconvenient. Okay, continue. Yeah, they, I'm with you now. They had actually, like, went to this... Because this guy, Yos, our guy, he was on the list to give his DNA, but he hadn't. And so the police had went to his house a couple times being like, hey, this guy's on the list to donate or not to donate, to give his DNA. And his family is like, yeah, bro, we haven't heard from him. We don't know where the fuck he is. Uh, But yeah, it was it was so he was found through a family member. And then from there, they windled it down 
to this dude, tested his DNA, and it was a match. I also like that you just made up a word. I don't know if you dwindled. That. You you took dwindled and whittled and made it <laughs> dwindled. <laughs> and everyone needs to appreciate what just happened. Windled. <laughs> uh, so they couldn't find this guy. He had been missing since February, which conveniently was when they started doing the testing of the 21,000 men in the area. It's almost like he knew he killed a kid and yeah, should probably not give his it's DNA. Al- it's almost like he was like, huh, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and he was actually one of the first 1,500 men selected. Like he was in like the very first group. And yeah, he'd last checked in with his family in February and he was officially reported missing in April. And Yoz was a weird dude. He was fucking weird. So he was a survivalist. He could live outdoors for really long periods of time. He actually had a YouTube channel of him, like, doing outdoorsy stuff. And he wanted to be, like, who's that guy on YouTube who just, like, Bear, films was, himself? I was going to say Bear Grylls, but it's not. It's the... I, don't I forget his name, but there's, there's like this outdoorsy guy who just films himself living outdoors. And that was like this guy. He was like trying to be like a wilderness man. I actually watched a clip from him. It felt really creepy watching it because he's just like walking through the forest and I don't know. Um, but he was also active in scouting and worked previously at a preschool. So he had been around. Uh, he had also been creepy. Himself, yeah, he's yeah. creepy. Yeah, he he put he was one of those people, you know, that like actively put himself around kids because he was creepy, because he wanted to do things. But his friends described him as a very reserved and self-contained person. They said, and I paraphrased this quote from Dutch, uh, but they said, no one knew Jos except for his sister. We assumed that he wasn't really missing, but had went to live outside for a few months. He is very reserved and has few means of communication. I must honestly say that I am very surprised. I know Yos as soft-tempered and a very introverted person. When they dug a little bit further into Yos, they found that he did have a history of sexually abusing children. Back in 1985... So 13 years before Nikki's murder, he came under heat for sexually assaulting a minor, but he wasn't convicted. And the reason why is not known. It just like didn't go further in the process somehow. And the file of that case has actually been destroyed. So you can't find details about it. We don't know what happened. Uh, But it was based on old newspaper articles that it, it was two boys of about 10 years old who were abused twice and Yos had made a confession. And furthermore, when it comes to Nikki, Yos was known to have been near the scene of the crime around what, like when it took place. In fact, one of the military police had seen him riding a bicycle near the scene of the crime and had spoken to him. And then he was called in as a witness to speak with him twice over the course of this investigation. But he was never thought of as more than just a passerby, even though he literally had a criminal history for sexually assaulting children. And this 
this was not known to the police, like when they were talking to him and interviewing him. And if it had been, I think he probably would have been caught a lot sooner. Again, Netherlands, we need to take a beat here because now you've got creepy dead guy who was allowed to work with children after assaulting children. And now you got Josie boy here who was allowed to work with children after assaulting children. Yeah, very active in scouting and near the crime scene, and nobody knew that he had this past. So he was and I appreciate of... that this was in your history, but it should have been done better. <laughs> so I guess it's time to find Yost, right? <laughs> so before he went missing, he was single and he lived with his mother. Shocker. Yeah, shocker. She passed away in April and was very ill when he disappeared. And when he left in February, he said he was going hiking in the Vosges Mountains in France. And he was seen near there in the St. Marie aux Mines, also in February. This was the last time he was seen, the last time he was heard of. So they're like, they're starting their search there. They're like, okay, maybe this dude is in France. A European arrest warrant was issued for him, and a large search for him across the whole continent began, and he was placed on the national hot list. I'm sorry, the national hot list just sounds like a list for attractive people. <laughs> there used to be That's this thing. <laughs> there used to be this thing when I was in high school called Hot or Not, and like it literally like ranked people whether they were hot or not. And oh, it I feels remember like, that. And it feels like that's what this is. You're on the national hot list, y'all. <laughs> Trust me, that's not what this is. This guy <laughs> is gross. <laughs> so then the police got a tip that he might be in Spain. And they searched his computer, actually, and he had been looking up, like, abandoned villages in Spain. And then, I love this part, so they blasted, like, his picture to like all Dutch people. And a Dutch tourist came forward saying that they recognized his picture because they had spoken to that man when they were on holiday in Castel Turcol. I don't know how to say that. Well, that's a, a soft town. Castel Turcol. Soul. Anyways, it's a small town near Barcelona. So the tourist said that they had spoken to that man and he was living in a tent in the woods. And police found him exactly there on August 26th, just four days after his DNA was found to be a match. He was extradited back to the Netherlands on September 6th and put in prison to await trial for kidnapping, rape, and manslaughter for Nikki Verstappen. He also had separate child pornography charges added because on his computer they found some of that too. So his trial began in September of 2020 after being delayed a bit by COVID, and he said he was absolutely not guilty. Uh, he This was his story. So he said that on August 11th, Hours before Nikki's body was found by the search party, he was walking close to the edge of the forest when he, quote, saw something in the distance and went to look for curiosity, and he found Nikki's body. He said that his DNA was found on his body because he had checked Nikki for signs of life, he brushed leaves off Nikki's body, 
and then he left without doing anything else because he was afraid about his prior history of being a pedophile. He didn't want to be the one who found the body. And he was asked why he never told anyone, and he replied, who believes an ex-sex offender? Who brushes leaves off of a potentially dead body? I know, and just like... Literally, if I stumbled upon someone that I thought was maybe dead, I would do the pulse check thing, and then if there was no pulse, I would immediately find police and be like, hi, I did touch their neck looking for pulse. Other than that, this is a body I found. Yeah, exactly. And also not didn't gonna... didn't brush leaves off and caress them while you were <laughs> that didn't happen. And there's no way that they can find more evidence of you there if you only touch their neck, right? Exactly. So, so yeah, and the court said, however, that the transfer of DNA was the result of lengthy and intensive contact, which indicates a sexual motive so it wasn't just like lightly brushing like they found a lot of dna on him prosecutors say 27 traces of dna on nikki's body and clothing matched yosa's profile including in his underwear and yos said he had no idea how his dna ended up in the underwear probably when you put your hands there bro and the prosecution further contested Yosa's assertions referencing a photograph taken of the location of where the body was found. So it was in like a pine grove, like Christmas tree farm. And where it was found, you could not see anything from far away. Like it took them, it, it was hard for them to find this body. So for Yost to say that he was just walking casually and then he saw something, it wasn't right because... You wouldn't see the body from that far away. Then Yos's lawyer argued that Yos said that he just saw something, not clarifying that it was body. He just saw something that drew his attention, and that's why he went over there. It wasn't necessarily the body. What was the something? What? What? Did the dead body send up a flare? Like, come on. You saw <laughs> something. So, yeah, the prosecution didn't buy this of course they thought that this was unbelievable and they believed him to be guilty of the kidnapping sexual abuse and manslaughter and although they didn't have a cause of death for nikki they like there's no other way that he could have died right like other than at the hands of yos because he was a completely healthy kid and to just disappear and then die like that doesn't that doesn't happen so the prosecution was requesting a sentence of 15 years imprisonment and the compulsory psychiatric treatment. Or if they didn't want to do the psychiatric treatment, then 18 years imprisonment. On November 20th, the court found Yos guilty of kidnapping and sexually abusing Nikki. However, they acquitted him of manslaughter. So apparently in previous offenses uh, with Yos and other children, he tended to place his hands over the victim's mouth to keep them quiet. And because of this, they could not find evidence that he had intentionally killed Nikki. So that's why he was acquitted. They thought, they, they knew, they're like, they maintained that, yes, Yos is the one who is responsible for Nikki's death. But because we can't say that he did it on purpose, 
we will acquit him of manslaughter. That's silly, though, because, like, even here, like, so say you're driving your car and you hit a person and they die. You still get vehicular manslaughter, even if your intent was not to murder that person. So you're covering someone's mouth and you suffocate them and kill them, even if that was not your intent, you still killed them. Yeah, this got me thinking, too, about, like, capital murder, which is something that the United States has, but Canada doesn't have it, and the majority of European countries don't have it. But it it essentially means that if you're doing a crime, like another crime, and somebody dies as a result of that other crime, then it's automatically, like... A murder sentence because like, it so, was your fault you did stupid things and someone died and it was your fault right like you are kidnapping someone and sexually assaulting them and in the process of that even if it wasn't on purpose they died which by the way i do think that this was on purpose but there's no proof of that right in a court of law so so because he's doing these bad acts like kidnapping someone and sexually assaulting them like if they die that's on you bro like that should be on him. And that is what capital murder kind of gives you, which the States has. But a lot of countries don't have that because there are also a lot of problems with having laws like that. Um, for example, one of the problems would be if you go to rob someone of 20 bucks with your friend and you have no idea that your friend has a gun and then they pull out a gun and they shoot the person and steal the 20 bucks, you even though you had no idea that that would happen, can go to jail for the rest of your life. And then it gets a little bit iffy, like if you just wanted to rob someone of 20 bucks and it goes wrong, because not because of you, do you deserve to go to jail for the rest of your life? You know? You're so an accessory. It's, yeah, it's a, little, it's a little fishy, and that's why, that's why uh, different countries have different laws on this. But anyways, yeah, so Yos was acquitted of manslaughter but guilty of kidnapping and sexual abuse and he was given a 12-year prison sentence as well as a six-month sentence for the possession of child pornography so in total a 12.5 year sentence and his lawyer announced that they would appeal this nikki's mom said that the sentence was not enough for the family which I completely understand. Twelve years is not enough, um, but they told, but but she told reporters that the court has ensured that we have a perpetrator and no longer a suspect, and we are happy with that. So just like they said they did, Yos's lawyer appealed, which began on January twenty eighth, twenty twenty two, and this is one of my favorite parts. They appeal this sentence, and then the appeals court found him guilty of everything, of manslaughter, kidnapping, and rape, and the possession of child pornography, and they sentenced him to 16 years. So his sentence went up by four years because he appealed. (laughs) Maybe don't be an asshole and, you know, take the punishment for the crime you've committed and and don't try to, you know... Because if yeah, you try to wiggle try to... your way out, maybe you're going to wiggle your way into more. I don't know. Yeah. You're... Also, you're just a worm and I hate you. <laughs> this is also something that wouldn't happen in Canada. Like, you can't go up. In... Same within the States. Like, you can't go up like this if you appeal. Or wait, maybe I'm saying that wrong. Am I saying that wrong? I don't 
I got myself. You can't get out. a higher sentence. Is like, that well, what you're if saying? You, uh, no, sorry. I mean, if you are acquitted of manslaughter, so he was acquitted in the first. Oh, you can't court, be retried. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to be found guilty of manslaughter in the in the appeals mm-hmm. court. Yeah, that's what I meant. Um, but yeah, he was found guilty. His sentence went up by four years. And apparently they plan to appeal again to the Supreme Court. So let's hope that his sentence goes up even more. That would be awesome. Like, just stop. <laughs> yeah. And Nikki's family, they, ha- they have been fighting for Nikki's justice all of these years, working so hard. They went to, like, the the Queen of the Netherlands begging for support. They They did a lot to keep Nikki's name out there and to make sure that this did not just become a case that was unsolved as it could have been, I think without their, without their constant support. And um, they were at every single court thing. And actually Peter R. DeVries's son was with them because Peter had been killed at this point. Uh, So I really like that his son was continuing to do this work for their family and i'm really happy that they they know who did it after all of these years you know it was a wild ride and i'm glad that there's some justice now yeah like you're not going to get your son back but at least you also don't have all these questions and and the person who did it isn't still wandering around with the potential to do it again yeah exactly there's been memorials erected for Nikki in his hometown. Also, his favorite soccer player or football player sent like a signed jersey to the family. Uh, so they had some stuff that Nikki would have really liked. So, yeah, that's all I have for the story today. And just a reminder, we will see you back in two weeks now. So not... Not next Friday, but the Friday after that. We will see you back for a brand new case. And I'm going to, I, uh, I'm finally going to talk about the, okay, now I'm holding myself to it. I'm going to talk about the Dutch serial killer. Yeah, like that just I said eight, we would talk eight about. years after she brought it up the first time, we're going to talk yeah. about it. <laughs> that is our next case. I promise I will be done by then. So yeah, come come back for that one and we will see you then. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes of Spook Pod. New ones are out every Friday. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to talk to us? Have questions? You can email us at thespookpod at gmail.com or follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at spookpod. For a full list of episodes, more deets, or to see what's coming next, visit our website, spookpod.com. This has been a presentation of Mostly Awkward Media. See See you next week. week!